Welcome to the New Life Podcast, a ministry of New Life Presbyterian Church in Ithaca, New York. Today we have this week's sermon preached by Tim LaCroix, our senior pastor. Join us for worship each week at 10 o'clock at 950 Danby Road, Ithaca, New York. You can also visit us on our website, www.newlifeithaca.org. Now here's this week's sermon. A reading of the Holy Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 1, verses 4 through 11. Please stand if you are able. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came down from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Last week was Martin Luther King Jr. Day and next month is Black History Month. And I was reminded of this week the events of March 7th, 1965, uh, which was a watershed moment for the civil rights movement. On March March 7th, 1965, a group of people assembled in Selma, Alabama, and began a protest march. They were marching for two things. They were marching to protest for the right to vote. Selma, in the the city of Selma in the county of Dallas, Alabama, was 50 at that time, in 1965, was 57% black. And there were 15,000 black people over the age of 18 eligible to vote. And of those 15,000, only 130 were registered. This was, this was accomplished by what is commonly known as Jim Crow laws, specifically literacy tests, which were rigged and oftentimes applied unjustly, and poll taxes, and other means of terrorizing and oppressing and keeping people from registering to vote, sometimes beating them, arresting them, and even terrorizing by murdering people. And so as that, as that march began on, on March the 7th, 1965, the plan was to go to Montgomery, Alabama, which is the state capital, and to present a petition to the governor of Alabama. His name is George Wallace. And the petition was that the governor would do his job and protect, use the state police and the Alabama National Guard to protect those who were trying to register to vote and who were being terrorized by law enforcement and civilians in the state of Alabama. As they began their march in the city limits, they approached the Alabama River and the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Edmund Pettus Bridge being named for a former Confederate general and Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. 
And as they crossed that river, they were crossing the boundary from the city to the county, from the mostly friendly jurisdiction of the city police chief uh, to the to the jurisdiction of the racist and abusive tyrant, the sheriff Jim Clark, who was standing there with over 200 people that he had deputized by sending out a message that every white man in the, in the county of Dallas needed to come and defend against the march. And so as the people crossed the bridge, they were attacked. They were assaulted. They were beaten with clubs. They were shocked with cattle prods. Men on horses used bull whips to, uh, to, to whip them. Future House of Representative John Lewis had his skull cracked. People were knocked unconscious. And all of it was caught on tape. Media members were there, journalists videotaping, taking pictures, and it was broadcast all over the world. And the outrage of what they saw shook America to its senses, shook Congress to its senses. And and within seven days, Lyndon Johnson had delivered the promised Voting Rights Act to both houses of Congress. The leaders of the Southern Christian, uh, the, the Southern Leadership Christian Conference, the the leader of whom was Martin Luther King Jr., believed that the right to vote was essential for obtaining freedom. And that day in Selma, Alabama, although it was horrible in the way that people suffered, was the turning point, the watershed moment in the fight for civil rights. In the text today, we have another event in a river that is a watershed moment. The word watershed is a metaphor that literally refers to a geographical uh, feature in the terrain where waters part. On one side of the watershed, waters go into one river basin. On the other side, they go into another river basin. That's a watershed, a literal parting of the ways. We use that metaphorically to describe a turning point, an important moment. We even put the word moment after watershed, a watershed moment. The moment that we read about in this river, the River Jordan, is a watershed moment. As I said earlier in the service, the baptism of Jesus is often not understood or misunderstood. Why why was Jesus baptized? If if we are baptized for for the remission of our sins, as we say in the Nicene Creed, if people are baptized to represent uh, the cleansing of their sins, as it says in in 1 Peter and also in Titus, if baptism is about dying to sin and being raised to righteousness, as we just read in Romans 6, why was Jesus baptized who had no sin? I wondered that myself for many years. Why did Jesus have to be baptized? The, the sort of lame answer, it's, it's in the text, but I think it's sort of a little bit lame, is, well, because it was to fulfill all righteousness, is the, the phrase that is given in the Bible. But there's really much more that can be said about why Jesus had to be baptized. And what we're going to do today is I'm going to, I'm going to sort of uncover three points. They, they, they are, uh, start with the fairly obvious to the a little bit more, uh, require a little bit more unpacking. And we're going to talk about not only why Jesus had to be baptized, but why this moment is so important. Indeed, it is the, one of the most important moments in human history. It signifies the dawning of a new creation, the turning point, the turning point of all human history. 
And the season of Epiphany is a season of revealing who Jesus is. We're going to have three revelations today. First of all, Jesus is revealed as God's beloved son. Therefore, you are God's beloved child. The the text of Jesus' baptism here in Mark is, is rather short, right? It's, 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 uh, in fact, it's so short, we had to tack on a reading about John the Baptist, which is more appropriate for Advent, just to have a reading that was long enough, you know. Uh, and it, it's, it's helpful. It gives us a little bit of context. But it, as Mark does, his, his uh, recounting of events is rather short. It's only two verses. But those two verses are jam-packed with symbolism and meaning. The first thing, the most obvious thing that we see in this passage is that Jesus is revealed as God's son. It's so obvious because heaven is open up and God's voice booms through the clouds and says, that's my son. I mean, that's like putting up a billboard, right? That's pretty, that's pretty obvious. Sir. So Jesus is revealed as God's son. He is the son of God. And as God's son, uh, he uh, he is also said to be the beloved of God and that he is well pleased with him. So Jesus is revealed as God's son. And in in terms of both the Old Testament and in Roman history at this point, the divine son was a king. David was given a prophecy by Nathan, and you can read about it in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It talked about how the prophecy said that Uh, Your son will sit on the throne forever. The divine son is David's son. As we say, David's son, yet David's Lord. This moment was prophesied in Psalm 2 as we read for our call to worship today. Uh, Today I have begotten you. You you are my son, my beloved son. Today I have begotten you. Jesus is both anointed as the divine son and is declared the divine son in the moment of his baptism. This, this shows us who he is. He is the son of God. In this context, the king. He is a king. He is a ruler. He is Messiah. And in the conception of first century Israel and in first century Rome, that's what son would have meant. The emperor is a divine son. And of course, the Messiah is also a divine son. Understanding this in terms that they would have gotten. So he is the son. And he is also the beloved God said, this is my beloved son. So love is entered in. Care is entered in. Uh, This this adds an aspect of of, of relationship and intimacy and gentleness and kindness that wouldn't necessarily be uh, imputed to the, the imperial son. But here we find that the father loves his son and he is well pleased with his son. And the point we want to glean from this is because Jesus is God's beloved son, you are God's beloved sons and daughters. We are told in the scripture that everything that belongs to Christ is ours. John Calvin spoke of of the ascension of Jesus, that the ascension of Christ means that everything that belongs to Christ is yes and amen for us. If through the waters of baptism, Jesus becomes God's son, Everyone who is baptized also becomes God's child. This is exactly what we read in Galatians chapter 3. There Paul says that everyone who was baptized into Christ has put on Christ. 
So like a coat or a cloak, a covering. Everyone who is baptized into Christ has put on Christ and belongs now to the family of Abraham, God's family. Paul writes in Romans 9 through 11 that we are grafted into the vine. Everyone who is baptized into Christ becomes a child of God. And so God says to you, you are my son. You are my daughter. You belong to God. But here's some more good news. God's family is not a dysfunctional family. Now, there's a caveat here. The church certainly can be dysfunctional. God's earthly family can be dysfunctional. We know that full well. I'm not making claims uh, that I know I can't back up. But God's heavenly family is not dysfunctional, like our earthly families and our earthly churches. God's family is not a family where the father looks on with scorn upon his children or with hatred or with disgust. In God's family, he loves his children. He looks at all his children and says, you are my beloved. I love you. And that's the way it's supposed to be. Because Jesus was baptized and declares God beloved son, you who are baptized are also God's beloved children. He loves you. And lastly, not only does he love you, he's pleased with you. Let that sink in. That may be the hardest one to hear and to believe. That God is pleased with you. God is pleased with you. Because God is pleased with Christ. And Christ has accomplished everything through his sinful life and his sacrifice and his raising from the dead and ascension into heaven. All of us who are baptized into Christ possess everything Christ has. That includes the pleasure of the Almighty Father. He's pleased with you. Your earthly father may not be pleased with you, but your heavenly father is pleased with you. Your kids may not be pleased with you, but your heavenly father is pleased with you. Your significant other may not be pleased with you, but your heavenly father is pleased with you. Your professors, your advisors, your your boss may not be pleased with you, but your heavenly father is pleased with you. Your students may not be pleased with you, but your heavenly father is pleased with you. Your friend or relation at relationships you have at work. There may be people at work you have enmity with. There may be folks who are angry with you. But your heavenly father is pleased with you. He loves you. This is the hardest thing for us to appropriate about the gospel, I think. That it really is true. That because we belong to God, he loves us and he's pleased with us. No ifs, no buts. We always want to put in the ifs and the buts. There's no ifs or buts here. There's no ifs or buts in Galatians chapter 3 or Romans 6 or 1 Peter, or 1 Peter 3. You belong to God. He loves you. He's pleased with you. Because Jesus is God's beloved son, you are also God's beloved child. The second thing we see revealed to us, and this is, again, increasing in the sort of obscurity in the Uh, a little of symbolism but the second thing we see is jesus is not just an earthly son but he is the second person of the trinity the second person of the trinity this is the first time in human history that the trinity is revealed first time 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Heaven opens up. The, the parallel universe that is heaven. God is all around us. He's everywhere. We talked about this a little bit last week. If God is infinite, he overwhelms the universe, right? Paul talks about how he is very near to us in, in Acts chapter 17 when he is speaking to the Athenians, although we cannot see him. We are encouraged to place our faith in what we cannot see. There is an unseen world around us. The Bible teaches us to believe this. Here in this moment, the veil is pulled back. A window is opened into heaven. And the voice of the Lord booms over the waters. The Son of God sits in the waters. And the Spirit of God descends in the form of a dove. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Later in Scripture, we have more revealed about this triune God of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That, that it is one God in three persons. We teach that this one God in three persons is infinite and eternal and unchangeable in his essence. The Athanasian Creed states that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And yet there are not three gods, but one God. Here we have a picture of this. We have a picture of it. The Father speaks, the Son enfleshed, being anointed and, and crowned. The Spirit descending as a dove. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Trinity revealed. And because Jesus here is revealed as the second person of the Trinity, you can follow him as a leader. How many of our leaders and how many of the people that we are asked to follow are imperfect or deeply flawed? So many of our leaders lack the, the, uh, the, moral, uh, the moral fortitude to be leaders. Uh, many of our leaders lack the wisdom and make bad choices. And if, and if, there's, if there are people that are faithful and are dependable that we, we can trust, they often don't have the power, right? Often is that the good people don't have the power to do anything. Well, here's Jesus. He has the moral authority to be a leader amongst the people. He has the faithfulness. He has the dependableness. And he has the power. Because he is God, fully God, God incarnate, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. As the writer of Hebrews says that he upholds the entire universe with the word of his power. He has the power to enact what he wisely decrees as a king. This is a leader we can follow. There is no other earthly leader that we can trust like we can trust this Jesus. He is revealed as the king but he is also revealed as faithful and true and powerful and good and wise. In a similar event called the Transfiguration, which is, we'll have the last Sunday of Epiphany, Peter, James, and John go up on a mountain with Jesus and something very similar happens. A voice speaks and says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So an added command is given. Listen to him. Follow him. You can follow this king. He is trustworthy. He is reliable. He has the moral authority. He has the wisdom. And he has the power. He's unlike any other leader you will have in this world. You can trust him. Lastly, this event, baptism of Jesus, reveals that Jesus is the dawn of a new creation. As I said, we're increasing in symbolism and sort of obscurity. 
Where do you get that out of this story, Pastor Tim? Well, some of this was alluded to in the scriptures that we read. We read the story from Genesis. Cynthia read this to us. And if we look back at that, you can look back in your, um, your, look back in your bulletin if you wish to uh, the scripture that was read at the beginning. I want you to notice the features of this story in Genesis chapter three, or 1. We have verse 2, the earth without form and void, darkness over the face of the deep, the Spirit of, the God, of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and then God said. Commentators have pointed out this is God, the triune God revealed. The Word speaking, the Spirit hovering, and God creating. It's, it's obscure, but looking backward, we can see a picture of the Trinity. If we, if we combine this passage with the one we just read from Mark, we can see the creation motifs are here. We have water. We have a voice speaking. We have the Spirit descending, hovering over the face of the waters as a dove. And we have the presence of the incarnate Word of God. This alludes to the fact that a new creation is dawning. A new creation is dawning. Jesus is leading us through the waters into a new creation, a new world. This is further, uh, this is further testified to with the Noahic allusions that are in the text. The story of Noah. This is the quote we have from Irenaeus it's the, uh, on page 3 of your bulletin that I talked about before. Church, Irenaeus saw a picture of the flood of Noah. If you don't know the story of the flood of Noah, after the flood, it was a dawning of a new creation. The, a dove came bringing an olive branch, the olive branch of peace. Here we have a dove descending on the waters, the flood of the Jordan River. And it is, it is, it is a dawning of a new creation. This is why Jesus was baptized, to answer the question. Jesus wasn't baptized because he had sin to remove. He wasn't really even baptized just to be a good example that we should also be baptized. Jesus was baptized because he's leading us through the waters into a new creation. We follow this Jesus through the river like the people of Israel did over a thousand years before as they walked through the Jordan River on the dry, dry land. They walked across, they walked through the waters as the children of Israel walked through the Red Sea into their freedom. We are to follow this king into a new creation where the Spirit is hovering over a fresh creation and follow him into new life. Now, why do we need a new creation? You think we need a new creation? You know, this creation is, uh, this world that we live in has many flaws. Can we as human beings fix them all? We're, I think we, should, we shouldn't give up. <laughs> we should certainly work for the new creation. Paul says in, Rome, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that the takeaway from the resurrection is that our labor is not in vain. That's what it says at the end of the chapter. Your labor is not in vain. How is it that our earthly labor is not in vain? Because aspects of the work that we do will come into the new creation. So this new creation is not just putting away this old creation and putting it into flames and, and we just deny it and don't work for its good. No, we work for its good because somehow in the mystery of the way that God will make this new creation, our deeds will be brought into it. 
But Jesus is inaugurating a new creation. He is making all things new. And this is the moment where, he, where it, is, it starts. This is the moment where it begins. And we are called to follow him. Jesus is the dawning of a new creation. Therefore, you can have hope. We live in a hopeless time, a hopeless world. So many things around us that, that, are, that, are, that are problematic and hurtful and harmful and scary. We can have hope. Why? Not because of any of those circumstances, but because Jesus is leading us into a new creation. You can have hope because of that. He is leading us into a new world where we read in the book of Revelation, there will never be any more tears because there is no more dying and there's no more pain and there's no more disease. There's no more sickness. There's no more betrayal. All of it will be done away with. We can have hope because of this Christ. And he is leading us into a new creation. And what is the means of his procuring this creation? Certainly the decree of God the Father that he is his beloved son. But as St. Irenaeus said, and we read the quote on page 3, it is by the wood of the cross. I love the connection that he made. The spiritual dove bringing the olive branch of peace, which is the wood of the cross. Jesus Christ brings in this new creation because he takes the pain of the old one on his body when he was nailed to the tree. He takes the pain of this world onto his body. He bears it for us. He dies for us. He sheds his blood. He pays the penalty that we owe. And with his resurrection into life, I love the words that we read, that Rachel read from Romans 6, he will never die again. He will never die again, and death will be no more. And we live into that new creation because he died and rose again. And because of that, we can have hope. I don't know if you know what happened at the end of the march to Montgomery. There were actually three marches. The first march I already described to you. The second march is called the turnaround march. They, they, they started and they turned around. Um, because uh, there was, well, there's some political things going on, but that's what it's called. The third march, they received promise of protection from the federal government, and so they made their march. They made their march from Selma to Montgomery. And when they, when they arrived to Montgomery, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. gave a speech. It's called the How Long, Not Long speech. You, you, you can pull up parts of this on YouTube and listen to it. He, he, there's, there's several parts of the speech. I want to focus on the How Long, Not Long part. Because what he was addressing was the longing that all of those people had, 25, 30,000 people gathered in Montgomery, Alabama, longing for their freedom, longing for a day when they would stop being beaten and murdered and tortured just for wanting to be citizens of this country. How long, he said, not long. He repeated that refrain over and over to encourage the people and give them hope. How long? Not long. Of course, we know that all these years later, there's still a struggle. There's still a struggle in our country for civil rights and issues of race. Can we say that we finally arrived at the dream that Martin Luther King had? Not fully. Not completely. Does his message of how long, not long still resonate? That seems like a long time from 1965. What is the message that we have to us? 
We're not talking about events that were 50, 60 years ago. We're talking about events that were 2,000 years ago. But, we, but he still says, not long. How can God look at us at a straight face and say, not long? Because in terms of eternity, it is not long. In terms of what we strive for, in terms of what we long for, it is not that long. We are encouraged that the longing is real. The hope is, is, is hard. There's so many times in the scriptures where the saints who are being persecuted say, How long, O Lord? And Jesus' tender answer in the book of Revelation is, Just wait a little while longer. It won't be long. Not in, term, in human terms, maybe. But not in terms of eternity. We can have hope. And we can follow this Christ into the new creation and know that he is the king that we can follow. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Please rate and review us on your podcast service and share with anyone who may be interested. The intro and outro music for the New Life podcast is provided by Sandra McCracken with her permission. Please visit her website at sandramccracken.com. We'll see you next week.